Well, we're all called to serve, not just those of us that are in vocational ministry. And there are challenges that arise, as well as great blessing when we follow the Holy Spirit's lead to minister to others. If there's one thing I want you to grasp about abiding as we serve, it's that a spirit-filled life in service is truly an extraordinary life. And by that, I mean extraordinary. Did you ever notice that the word extraordinary really is extraordinary? You will see God change you and work through you in ways you could never imagine. So I want us today to go over some different stories in the book of Acts, which I thought's perfect since your church has been studying the book of Acts. And um, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be spirit-filled servants this morning. And I am going to begin briefly in Acts 6, talking about Stephen, focusing on a little bit different things than I did a few weeks ago when I visited your church. But I wanted us to begin by thinking about our attitude as we serve others. Are we spirit-filled as we serve? Are we truly humble servants? Or are we unteachable, prideful people that might get in the way of God's service to others? Well, in Acts 6, it begins by talking about seven men who were selected to serve the widows food um, when they were being neglected the daily distribution of food. And in verse 3 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. One of the main requirements was for them to be filled with the Spirit. doesn't matter if you're serving in the nursery, if you're serving in the kitchen, or if you're serving up front in the choir. It does not matter. Each one of us, as we serve, is expected to be filled with the Spirit. Now, both the chosen servants, as well as the leader, Stephen, were expected to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, in verse 5, it said that Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Normally, the people that lead others need to have a little bit more faith, a, li a little bit more trust in God <laughs> to encourage the rest along. What the beautiful result was in verse 8 is Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. God was using him mightily because he was full of faith and full of the Spirit. Unfortunately, as we keep reading the chapter, we start to see that there are prideful people that come up against Stephen because he was filled with the Spirit because God was working in his life. In verse 10, it says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. That's how obvious it was that Stephen was speaking under a different authority, a different power than his own strength. When you think about the ways you have served within the church or within your community or within your family, can people see that is the Holy Spirit in you, serving them. What's important to see here is just because we're spirit-filled, just because we're loving and gracious and kind and mindful of others, does not always mean they say thank you. Does not always mean they are appreciative. In fact, here, 
They saw that his face in verse 15, it says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. But yet it didn't matter. They did not respect Stephen for what he was saying. And what's interesting is when Stephen stood up before this council of religious people, he accused them of one thing. He could have accused them of many things, right? Their sin, their unteachability, their lack of faith. But this is what he said in chapter 7, 51. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. His greatest concern for them was their resisting the Holy Spirit. So often we get offended even when we're doing God's work, that people are offending us. People aren't respecting us. People aren't listening to us. But Stephen saw, no, you're not respecting the Holy Spirit that is speaking through me. I'm not doing this in my own strength, but through the Spirit. So we need to first begin by thinking about how often are we those prideful, stubborn people that resist the Holy Spirit, that don't listen maybe to that younger leader or that inexperienced person that might have an opportunity to influence? Are our hearts and ears shut off to his leading and guiding? Do we think we know better than the person that's facilitating something? He will never be able to effectively use our lives for service in his eternal kingdom. And we will hinder the ministry from moving forward if we do not respect and submit to the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. So what would our ministry or service look like if we did live in the power of the Holy Spirit when we say yes to serve others? Well, first, as we see with Stephen, we might be persecuted. Not everyone will respect our service. It says in chapter 7, verse 55, but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I don't know about you, but no matter what happens to me as I serve, especially within the body of Christ, I want to end my time knowing I'm focused on Jesus and not how people respond to me. I want to focus on what he's called me to do, have confidence to do it, and then say how they react or respond is between them and the Lord. And Stephen did that in verse 60. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as they were stoning him and killing him. In the moment he was being stoned, he forgave them because he was filled with the Spirit. Now, I have said before, but persecution looks different for us in the United States. But you know what? We can still be persecuted and deeply harmed and affected by other believers in the church. And that is why there are so many divisions and separations. And we need to be the protectors of unity. And the only way we can do that is by being filled with the Holy Spirit. I've been on staff with crew for 18 years. And... Uh, eight of those years, I was a national director with crew. And as I was um, joining onto this team, I was only 28 years old. I had just come back from China. Um, so see, I didn't end up in that one-bedroom apartment in Berkeley. And, um, and I joined this team of all married men and me. 
And I immediately noticed in our very first meeting that this team was divided. There was a rift in this team, and I quickly saw who was on which side. And I was the new person. I came in seeing things that, that, that they might not have been able to see because I had not been in our region for two years. I had been overseas. Well, the, the team was functioning so poorly that we had to bring in executive leadership from Florida to help our team figure out how to function and move forward. All our meetings were about conflict instead of moving our region forward in the mission. And what our wise leadership did was they met with each of us individually and he asked us two questions. What do you think the conflict is on your team? And if you were me, what would you do about it? I thought, wow, that is really good. And my observation was there was a conflict that happened and people were unwilling to forgive. And they said, I'm not willing to forgive because you don't understand how it made me feel. You haven't empathized enough. You haven't reflected back my pain. And so I will not forgive. And because they will not forgive, Trust cannot be rebuilt, and if trust cannot be rebuilt on a team, we can't move forward. So I said, if I were you, I would remove the people that are unwilling to forgive. And I'm a 28-year-old single woman on this team of all married people. And you know what they did? They removed the people that were unwilling to forgive. And you know what? This happened years ago, so I can kind of generally share this story. But this was devastating to the people below us. We are leading 300 missionaries in three states and they want to know what happened. Every person on that team is influential. Every person on that team, God called them there for a season to impact. And you know what's interesting? It wasn't the men on the team that had those views. It was their wives. Their wives were not the national directors. It was their husbands. I was the only woman that was a national director. But because of the wife and her unforgiveness, the husband had to step down. That gives me the chills. The role, the power, our own sin or our own immaturity can have to affect not only our ministry, but our spouse's ministry if they're serving. And we couldn't tell anyone. We couldn't say why these people were removed. It's illegal. It's, it's an HR process you can't share. They're not going to, you know, shame their wives. Mm -hmm. I respected some of these men that needed to step down. And so all of a sudden, the 300 missionaries, what happened? Who do we follow? Do we follow the ones that need to leave or do we follow the ones that are going to stay? And immediately we had a question of splitting. And who's leaving? Who would even leave staff after years and years of serving in this organization? My roommate was my best friend. She was a new staff with me at UC Berkeley. She, was, she came and visited me when I was in China. Here I come back. I'm a national director. And she says, Holly, you've got to tell me what happened. I don't know who to trust. I don't know who to follow. You know how hard it was for me to keep my mouth shut, how much I wanted to defend, how much I wanted to have her trust and respect me. And yet the people that were removed were older and seemed to be wiser, had longer ministry experience. Why would they be removed? Why would I get to stay? And she says, Holly, I don't know, but I need to follow them. I need to respect them. 
And then she even said, I don't even know if I can trust your walk with the Lord. I mean, I don't know if there could be any more painful stab from my best friend who has walked with me for eight years of my ministry, who would have been my maid of honor if I had been getting married in that season of life, and to think, I cannot do anything but keep my mouth shut to have integrity as a leader in this position. All I knew in that lonely time of leadership is I'm walking with Jesus. I said what I thought I needed to say. I said what I thought was biblical. And now I have to have the character to stay quiet and move forward. And 40 amazing people chose to transition out of our region. And then, of course, because I was the neutral one, so they thought, I had to lead a conference of the 300 people to help graciously um, transition those 40 people and honor them for their years of service before they left us because they were choosing to not follow our leadership. It was probably the most incredibly challenging times of serving the body of Christ. And there's no way I could have done that unless I was walking in the confidence and power of the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ. Stephen was only required to do one thing, to be filled with the Spirit. Just think, what can we walk through victoriously? What can a church walk through victoriously? What can a couple in ministry walk through victoriously if we are continually filled with the Spirit? Well, what else can happen to us? We can become power hungry. Sometimes we can try to take on the role of the Holy Spirit, independent of Him and His power, because we want the glory. We get a taste of what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. You see someone come to Christ. You see someone's life impacted in discipleship. You lead a Bible study and see it's effective. And all of a sudden, you want to start reenacting it on your own. This formula worked, so you think. Well, this happened to Simon in the book of Acts. He saw the power of the Spirit that Philip had, and it did cause him to become a believer. But as a young believer, he was more intrigued by the power that Philip had than the, the life change that was happening in people's lives, not for the blessing of others. It says in Acts 8, 18 and 19, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. It actually doesn't sound like so bad of a request. In fact, if you only read that, you thought, well, wow, he wants to have an impact just like the disciples did. But Peter saw what, right through to the motive of his heart. And in Acts 8.21, he said, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The Spirit might be asking us to repent of our pride or our self-sufficiency in ministry, especially if we have been serving the Lord in the same area for years and years. It just becomes old hat. You know how to lead that thing. You know how to facilitate that thing. And so we lessen on prayer and dependence. We will never be filled if that is our motive. We must ask ourselves, why do I want to be filled with the Spirit? What is my true intention? Is it to bless others or to experience that power and, and kind of that, that 
awesome feeling it might have to see lives changed. Well, what else could happen? We could have promptings led by the Spirit. Now, I love Acts chapter 8 when it talks about Philip. In fact, I was joking with Dell earlier this weekend that if, I had, if we had a third child, maybe we should have named him Philip because I love Philip's story. Philip was told by an angel of the Lord, go to Gaza. He didn't know why. Just like Abraham last night didn't know why. He said, go to Gaza. And he obeyed and went in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, I don't know about you. I honestly have never had the angel of the Lord come and tell me to go somewhere. But I have been prompted by the Holy Spirit to get up and go and talk to somebody. And we see that that's the second command that Philip's given after he goes to Gaza. In the distance, he sees a chariot. He didn't know who was in the chariot or what the person was doing. But the spirit came to him and said, go over and join this chariot. What would you do? If you felt God was calling you to go over and talk to someone at that table in Starbucks or your next door neighbor or your coworker on break, what would you do? What would your response be? Would you even know his prodding? Well, Philip, being filled with the Spirit and knowing his voice with confidence, didn't just meander over, look in the window of the chariot, see what was going on. What did he do? He ran to that chariot. We want to become people that are so trusting of the Holy Spirit. We know that voice so well. We see how God uses us so much that we run to opportunities, not knowing what will happen. Well, what does he experience? He meets this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah, which are prophecies about Jesus, and he explains them. And this eunuch comes to Christ, go back, goes back, and he might be the person that brought the entire gospel to Ethiopia because he was such an influencer um, in Ethiopia at that time. You never know. Go to Gaza. Go to that chariot. Oh, wow, now an entire country is going to have the gospel. You never, never know. About six years ago, I was asked to lead a team to Cairo, Egypt during the revolution when President Mubarak was, was um, kind of fled out of the presidency. And so we went in there um, with having no previous uh, ministry. We went in as students. And so I'm trying to look younger by wearing Sesame Street t-shirts and capris and flip-flops as I'm taking a class from one of the most prominent Muslim professors um, in the entire Middle East. It's a woman professor in politics. So how fun is it that you're watching the entire revolution happen before your eyes, you're hearing the bombs go off at night, and you have the professor living you through the revolution as you're, you're taking these classes. Well, my professor, we're there to try to engage college students with the gospel. But my professor ended up in a car accident, missed a few days of class. And when she came back, the first prodding, the first go I heard was go to her after class, ask how she's doing, and say you're praying for her. And so that's what I did. I thought, okay, she's Muslim, they pray. And so she said, well, the doctor said, my baby's going to be okay. And I'm like, your baby? I didn't even know you were pregnant. She wasn't really showing yet. She goes, yes, I'm pregnant. Um, but um, uh, he's, the doctor said my baby's going to be just fine. And I said, well, that's wonderful. Um, I said, well, I was just, just want you to know we were praying for you while you were gone. Well, that night 
at three in the morning, like every night at three in the morning in a Muslim country, the call to prayer goes off and you start hearing them chant their prayers. And I was woken up and the next thing I felt like the Holy Spirit said is go to the other room and write her a letter. And I was supposed to write her a letter of Psalm 139 and how God um, knows her and knows this baby in her womb, how she is fearfully, wonderfully made, how this baby is fearfully, wonderfully made. And I wrote her this, this letter and I thought, if I give this to her and she questions too much if I'm evangelizing, I could be kicked out of this country with my entire team. But I felt like the Holy Spirit told me to do it. So it doesn't seem wise, but I'm going to give her this letter. So a day after I gave her the letter, she said, thank you so much. That is the nicest thing I've ever received from a student. The next day later, this is all happening in one week's time. We're doing a presentation in class and all of a sudden she keels over and runs out of the room. And I could see her through the door of the classroom and I decide, I think the Holy Spirit's telling me I need to go and see what's going on with her. Every other student in the room is frozen. Like what just happened to our confident, competent professor? I go out there. She's in a black pencil skirt. She's kneeling over and she goes, I'm losing my baby. I'm losing my baby. And with tears streaming down her face, she's freaking out. And I said, how can I help you? Let's call 911 or whatever it is in that country. And she says, no, no one can know because my own husband does not know. I've already had two miscarriages. He will be devastated and angry at me if he knows I cannot produce a child. And so, uh, and she already had one, but it's he wanted, he wanted a second child. She goes, I cannot have anyone no, leave me alone. I'm going to go into the bathroom. And I waited out there and I'm praying for her and she comes back and she's all professional and she comes in and finishes the class. And I couldn't focus on the class. I'm like, God, what am I supposed to do in this moment? I'm a single woman. I've had friends that have had miscarriages, but I never really asked them about it. And I don't know if I can relate to her. This is really tragic. And I go out after class and I go up to her and she looks at me and she goes, I need you to come home with me. I cannot go through this alone. She goes, would you please come home with me? Now we had an agreement. We had a norm on our team. Women never go anywhere alone in that country. You don't leave your team. And I just thought, I have to do it. I have to go with her. I had no clue what that would mean. So we go and she has a chauffeur and we're in the back of her black car. And she's freaking out. She goes, thank you for coming home with me. And she goes, why do you care about me so much? And I said, it's God in me. God wants you to know that you are not alone, that he cares for you. And she goes, I have never felt so loved or taken care of by someone before in my life. She goes, I'm alone. No one respects women in leadership here. No one respects that I'm, I'm, I'm a professor. She goes, no one respects that I choose to be unveiled in a Muslim country because I'm progressive. Um, she says, I, I have no friends. I can't even tell my husband what I am walking through. And then in our long 45-minute journey to her house in traffic, she started to freak out. And she goes, oh, my goodness. You need to get out of this car right now. Totally opposite of Christy the vampire who wanted to pull over on the side of the road to accept Christ. She said, I need you out of this car right now because I think I fancy you. I'm like, what? And she goes, I have never felt such a strong attraction to an individual, man or woman in my life, than I do with you right now. And I said, Professor, that's not me. That's Jesus in me. You have never met someone with Jesus in them that can love you and care for you in a moment of need. 
And she goes, you got to get out because you're Christian, I'm Muslim. Both of us know this cannot happen. I said, it will not happen, but you are not dropping me off in the middle of a street in a Muslim country all by myself. You will take me to your house and your chauffeur will take me home. And I have no clue I had so much gall to say that to a professor, but took her, took, went to her house and she said, stay with me. And I'm like, okay, now I don't know if I want to stay with her. You know, this is kind of weird. And she's laying on her bed in the fetal position, still going through this miscarriage. And she gets a phone call from her husband. And she goes, you cannot tell him what's going on. And she just said that one of her students came home with her because she was having a hard day emotionally. And um, he gets on the phone with me. So now I'm on the phone with a, a Muslim husband. And he said, she needs to come to this party tonight. I have an important business um, engagement. And I don't care how emotionally sad she is. So you need to come with her and come to this party. And I'm like, OK. I left this morning to go to class in my Sesame Street t-shirt. I have Oscar the Grouch on my shirt. You know, I am not going to some businessman's party. And I said, you can't. I told her, I go, you can't go. You are in so much pain. How are you going to go to this party? And she goes, I have to. You have to come with me. And so she puts me in one of her slinkiest blue dresses that nobody should wear, especially in a Muslim country, um, and if you're a Christian. And we get in a car, and we end up at this house that's bigger than any mansion I've ever seen. He ends up being um, one of the richest men in Egypt. He's a billionaire that oversees the entire car industry of, of all of Egypt. And this party we went to was not a party. It was him, his wife, two men from France that are trying to get some kind of French car in the country, her husband, her, and me. So who's the per odd man out? Who doesn't have a partner in all this? Me. And I'm sitting there thinking, I just went to school today in my Sesame Street t-shirt. And it was there at that party in that really uncomfortable, very elaborate situation that in their bathroom she lost her dress. And I was there. And I was with her. We had one week left in the country. And she said, would you come over and, and, and visit with me one more time? And I just thought, okay, I've not shared the gospel with her yet. But what if she tries to hit on me? Seriously. I mean, she was definitely acting very odd. And my co-leader said, Holly, if she acts funny toward you, you just tell her chauffeur to take you home. He goes, what if it's your only chance for this prominent person to hear the gospel? So we go. And you know what? He, my co-leader had said to her, oh, Holly's writing a book on a vampire who changed her life, because that's what I thought the title was going to be in my book. And um, she goes, I want to hear about this vampire. So believe it or not, I get to share the gospel with her by telling her Christy's story in her living room. And she goes, Holly, what's the difference between Jews, Muslims, and Christians? I need to know. And I said, it's their view of Jesus. You need to figure out who Jesus is. I am a follower of Jesus, and he has changed my life. But you need to decide, just like Christy did, if you want to follow him. Here's a Bible. Study him for yourself. Now, as of now, I do not think she's yet a believer. But, man, if I wasn't like Philip in that moment and be willing to just go and say, I'll pray for her. Go and write her that letter. Go to her after class while she's having... Um, a miscarriage. Be willing to go to her house when I didn't know. Be willing to go back when I think she might be hitting on me. I mean, how many opportunities did I have to say, no, I don't want to go? And yes, we don't know the end of the story. But I can't wait to hopefully see her in heaven one day, right? What else can happen? We are running out of time, but this is the last one. Preaching the Holy Spirit. Saul, before he was given the name Paul, was a new convert. He was with Ananias. And in Acts 9, 17, it says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and what? 
be filled with the Holy Spirit. How often when we see somebody decide to follow Jesus, do we help them understand the role of the Holy Spirit in their life? It's like, great, you're a new believer. Now come to church. You know, there's no real clarity on the role of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. This is why it's my passion to talk about it. That's why it's my passion to teach about it. Um, but this was the first thing that Saul or the Apostle Paul learned as a new convert. How often are we teaching others about the role of the Holy Spirit? This is one of the foundations that we need to be talking to others about. Not just new believers, but mature believers alike. And this was given to Paul so that he could have effective ministry. Paul's physical eyes were opened, but his spiritual eyes were opened. And the first thing he did was go and preach Jesus. And that's what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. We want to tell others about Jesus. And what's interesting is what happens then. That's how the church grows. You want to know how your church is going to grow? You're going to tell others about Jesus. And they're going to have the Holy Spirit change their life. Look at Acts 9.31. This is our last verse of, of our time together. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Not only was Paul filled with the Spirit, but as the church grew, it shows that the people in the body of Christ were filled with the Spirit also. The peace, the mutual building up, the walking in the fear of the Lord can only happen when the body of Christ understands this idea of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Paul must have taught them that. So we see that the Holy Spirit helps us influence individuals. But this shows us how the Holy Spirit helps us multiply our church. We cannot be spiritual multipliers without being spirit-filled. If we want to see small groups grow, churches grow, ministries multiplied, more pockets of people groups reached around the world, we need to have those two things, the fear of the Lord and being filled with the Spirit. And then together, we're going to see our church grow. So I just want to recap what we just heard even just this morning. The necessity of the Holy Spirit in our ministry. Stephen couldn't lead the seven men without the Holy Spirit. Stephen couldn't speak in a hostile environment without the Holy Spirit. Stephen couldn't die forgiving his persecutors without the Holy Spirit. Philip didn't know where to go without the Holy Spirit. Philip probably wouldn't have talked to a stranger or shared the gospel without the Holy Spirit. Saul wouldn't have gone out sharing Jesus everywhere without the Holy Spirit. The church would not have multiplied or been built up without the people being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the point becomes very clear. Effective ministry cannot happen without that one requirement, us daily surrendering our lives and being filled with the Spirit. We don't want to leave here this morning with just having a temporal impact on people's lives. We want to make an eternal impact on people's lives. We want the church have an eternal impact on your community. We want to live an extraordinary life that God has planned for us. So are you ready to leave this place? Are you ready for an adventure ahead? Are you ready to abide in him moment by moment and live a surrender, amazing life?